Welcome to our show, Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm Hannah Leach. And I'm Audrey Leach. We are the sister filmmaking duo, also known as Two Pink Pictures, and we have not stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the very often made-for-TV movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? I'm just going to say, this one's actually I know, made this one's for actually TV, a TV movie. so it works. I know, I thought about that too. Today, we are talking about the very historic, very underrated, and very amazing 1997's Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. While the world is full of zanies and fools. Share the love. Who don't believe a sensible rule? Of a true classic. Things are happening. Yeah. It's the fabulous fairy tale your family will enjoy forever. It's Disney's Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, available to all... This is a big one. Yeah. And it's different. It's different than everything we've covered thus far because it's a musical, first of all. (laughs) Yes. And it's made for TV. Yes. It's actually made for TV for once. Yes. And it's and it's just better. better. It's way better <laughs> than everything else. <laughs> God tier. And it's just less well known, I think, or it's just less talked about. I don't know that it's actually less well known. It might just be that people talk about it less. I don't know. I agree that it is maybe not less well known, but it's definitely more of like a thing for Theater kids. Yeah. (laughs) And you would have had to have caught it at a specific time. I feel like it's super hit or miss. Like if you weren't there for this specific time or your mom basically wasn't there to purchase it or to watch it on TV, like you would have missed it. Right. So before we get into the facts surrounding this movie, I just want to open up this episode with an excerpt from Kendra James's oral history of Cinderella. She wrote this incredibly thorough, long-form piece of journalism about the oral history of Cinderella. It's called It's Possible, the oral history of the making of 1997 Cinderella for Shondaland.com, which I'm thinking is like a blog. She probably wrote like yeah. a blog post Shonda for it. Shonda Rhimes. Yeah, but it's um incredibly thorough, and this article guided us a lot through all of our research for this, so thank you, yes. Kendra. The ultimate shout out. Literally the biggest shout out to Kendra because it was an amazing piece. So I'm going to read just the opening of this article because I think it sets the stage really well for this movie. When shooting began for Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella in July of 1997, the closest Disney had come to showcasing a black princess were the muses from Hercules. In fact, it would be another 12 years before an animated black girl got the lead in The Princess and the Frog. But megastar Whitney Houston didn't want to wait. Instead, the Grammy and Emmy award-winning artist set out to make a diverse, multicultural Cinderella, starring a young Brandy Norwood, who would become Disney's first black princess. Remaking Cinderella had been on Houston's mind for years, long before any footage was shot, before glass slippers were fitted, before anyone thought that Cinderella could have microbraids. Houston and her co-producers knew how important it was for each modern generation to have their own Cinderella, and for many young black girls growing up in the 90s, Brandy was ours. (laughs) So we're white. Yes. (laughs) We're very white. Yes. But I would say that in our lives, 
Brandy Cinderella was definitely the most beloved Cinderella in yes, our childhood. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, the original Disney animated <laughs> Cinderella is quite bland. It's kind of boring. We did love, I guess we liked it. We I watched don't know. it, but we, we definitely didn't watch it as much as we watched it's not, this one. Yeah, it's not a musical like this is a musical. This is like almost just a Broadway musical. Recorded, recorded. on a soundstage. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. But when we were reading this article today, preparing to talk about it, Audrey and I both were so inspired and like touched by reading it I think just teary yeah just because like knowing that this was such a big step in representation for so many people and like feeling like oh I can be a glamorous princess too that's just touching especially because we were such princess people Mm -hmm. when we were little kids anyway so here are the facts this movie premiered on the wonderful world of Disney on November 2nd 1997 The budget for this movie, which was $12 million, made it the most expensive made-for-TV movie up until that time. $12 million as a budget is not that crazy for, like, a regular movie musical, but for something that was ultimately only gonna be, like, 90 minutes at the absolute most, that's just, like, a crazy amount of money. It was shot in the same MGM stages where The Wizard of Oz was filmed. Love that. Yeah. Legendary. We couldn't ask for more. Yeah. <laughs> um, the movie was directed by Robert Iskov, who directed From Justin to Kelly, second time that movie has come up. Anyway, he directed Cinderella before any of this, but ultimately he directed She's All That two years later, and he directed one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which I love Star Trek, so I was excited to see that credit. Um, Audrey, would you like to tell us about the music? Of this yes. movie. So the music in this version of Cinderella is mostly derived from Rodgers and Hammerstein because they are the original lyricist and composer yeah. duo of Cinderella, the Broadway show. And some of Rodgers and Hammerstein's work, if you are not aware, <laughs> is Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, and The Sound of Music. You don't like musical theater if you don't know any of these, you know? What a lot of people, including myself, didn't know about this movie is that a few of the songs are not actually from Cinderella, the musical, the way it was originally written. There's a plethora of reasons for those changes, but I think for the most part, it was either that, you know, they made a casting choice and they really wanted a song for that character, or it just didn't fit with the multicultural casting. They had this show that was from the 50s, made for this all-white cast. And also, when they did the Broadway musical, they would cast people to the material. Whereas with this movie, they kind of, like, got the the players and then kind of molded the material to fit the players yeah. especially well. So, like, what Audrey was saying with how some of the stuff doesn't make sense with, like, a black Cinderella. Like, there's a line about how pale she is in one of the songs. They changed that, obviously. But the crazy thing to me, is that they made those lyric changes without getting clearance. Yeah. yeah. That's, like, so illegal to do with yeah. theater stuff. Like, I'm so surprised and I got away with that. they only changed four words. Yeah, but still, you can yeah. get in big trouble for even oh, doing that. I know. And and it's Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's not some, like, they really... For you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Rodgers and Hammerstein took 90% of profits, or royalties, mm-hmm. I guess, from... Seven Rings, the Ariana Grande song. Yeah. They're not messing around. They're not messing around. The teleplay for this made-for-TV movie was written by Robert L. Friedman, who is, like, heavily the sort of man we would be into. Uh, He wrote the book 
for Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. It was like a big musical a few years ago. He went to NYU for dramatic writing and musical theater writing for his MFA. And he wrote the Emmy-winning miniseries Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows. <laughs> this man is straight. <laughs> but clearly he's got some sort of like tether into the into world the of musical theater. And he has a wife. I mean, who knows? Maybe he's not straight, but he knows? has a wife. We don't know. I was surprised to see that. Good for him. <laughs> a big part of this movie, literally the whole reason why this project even happened was because the movie was produced by this team that was led by Whitney Houston. So Whitney Houston had this idea, like probably 10 years before it actually got produced, where she wanted to be Cinderella in a multicultural, what she described as like racially blind, casted version of Cinderella. She was really passionate about it, but it obviously wasn't like the only thing she was focusing on because she was like Whitney Houston. <laughs> so she had other yeah. stuff going on. But by the time that Michael Eisner decided that the project would be the perfect way to relaunch the wonderful world of Disney, she was 33. And in her she mind... She wasn't really feeling... In her mind, she was like, I'm not Cinderella anymore. I'm too yeah. old. Which I find it so funny that she was only 33. But I also, I love that she was that self-aware because the reason that they especially were thinking that way is because Diana Ross played Dorothy in The Wiz. Right, um, right, right. Like 15 years prior, more than that, like more like 20 years mm -hmm. prior. And the reviews of that were kind of like, eh, she was a little old to be playing Dorothy and yeah. they had that in their minds. And yeah. There was also a lot that I saw in writing about how this imagining of Cinderella in a lot of ways kind of felt like a follow-up to The Wiz because it was mm -hmm. like the first time that such a mainstream IP was being reworked in like a non-white focused way. Yeah. And it was filmed in the same stage as the original Wizard of Oz. It's I mean, kind of connected. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of connected. But basically, Whitney's whole idea from the very beginning was that it would be this all-encompassing, very diverse imagining of Cinderella. But ultimately, a fairy tale. And, you know... Yeah, it's not like... It's not... It's not Hamilton. Right. It's not Hamilton in the fact where they're like... They don't have to, like, sweep the horrible deeds of Cinderella under the rug for it to make sense for, like, a black woman to be playing Cinderella. Like, mm -hmm. in the way in Hamilton, they're like, these people were slave owners, but now it's Lynn playing this character. Yeah. Like, you know, that's complicated. Yeah. It feels very 2015 to me. Yeah. Hamilton feels very 2015. True. But me with my hot takes on Hamilton, I could honestly <laughs> go on and I'm not going to. We won't get into that. We won't start beefing with Lin-Manuel on mic. <laughs> on a public forum. <laughs> or the one-way beef. I've always felt like I have a one-way beef with him. <laughs> the plot synopsis of this movie, it's literally just Cinderella. There's no tagline, very unfortunately. Yeah. I would say that if there was going to be a tagline, it would be It's Possible. Yeah, or maybe like or impossible things are happening every day. Or like there's music in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things they could have used, yeah. but they didn't. But really the main thing with this movie is that the cast of characters and the actors playing these characters were like tip-top mid to late 90s stars. Would you like to read us this cast? Yes. So we have Brandy as Cinderella in her film debut. At this time, she was already in the TV show Moesha, mm -hmm. and she was a semi-pop star, if not, you know, yeah. she was coming out with music. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that's how Whitney knew of her through the TV show and just her general teen fame. Yeah. And then we've got Whitney as a fairy godmother. And there's... 
a million tellings of the story of Whitney calling Brandy and being like, I want you to be this part. And then Brandy saying she wouldn't do it unless Whitney would be the fairy godmother and whatever, as if Brandy really had any power. (laughs) They love to say it like that. There's no way it was like that. The producers just let Whitney handle all of the calling and casting for the part of Cinderella because she wanted to handle that. And they really clearly grew into like a mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah, which you may have seen on Twitter the really iconic footage of Whitney like yelling at Brandy for like going down the octave (laughs) on a high note in the recording session, which is just funny because I don't don't think Brandy's that good of a singer. But especially compared to everyone else. She's different. She's just really softer. She's a lot softer. But we are getting way ahead of ourselves with that. Anyway. Um, And then we've got Jason Alexander, who was in the middle of shooting Seinfeld as Lionel. I guess the actor Jason Alexander is more of a theater guy, but he was <laughs> at heart, but he was um, very heavily in the mix of Seinfeld. And he only had a few months of off time to shoot anything else or any other project. So he was really like lucky to get in on this mm-hmm. at the time he did. And then we've got Whoopi Goldberg as Queen Constantina. Queen Constantina. <laughs> who is also maybe not who you would think of for that part. And she actually (laughs) wasn't originally um, who they had in mind for that part. They actually had Queen Dame Julie (laughs) Andrews in mind for the part. But that was um, around the time when Julie had uh, vocal cord problems. The vocal surgery gone wrong. Which, yeah, let's not even get me started (laughs) on that. But um, Whoopi Goldberg had kind of told the producer she was here for them, like whatever part they needed her for. They originally wanted her for the stepmother, but she was like too busy, I guess, when they asked her. And then they were like, please, can you be the queen? And she was like, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Very iconic. Yes. Next, we have Victor Garber, 90s icon <laughs> as the king. He's like when on Twitter when they're like white boy of the week. Well, yeah. Victor Garber was our white man of the of 90s. The decade. <laughs> yeah. There's so many reasons why and we will get to we'll all get of to them. That. Um, I love him. Yeah. I mean, if you've seen the movies we're covering, you probably get why. Yes. But yeah. So Paolo Montalban as the very hot prince. He's so hot in this yeah, movie. It's just... <laughs> I'm literally sweating because it's a thousand degrees in here, but (laughs) facts. Yeah. And he was the only true unknown to like mainstream entertainment. He was in the chorus of The King and I. An understudy. So chorus when he was not going on. Yeah. And I guess he like was running late to the audition and he was like the last person to come in and they were like, oh, that's the hottest man I've ever seen. And they were really struggling casting this part. They saw Tay Diggs, who was coming off Rent fame and they were like into that. And um, Wayne Brady and just like all these super 90s choices. Amazing. So thank God they found him in the in the last hour there. Flash forward to like 2017 when I went to go see a play by myself, a musical by myself in New York, and he was in it. And I didn't know he was going to be in it. That was Did that change your life? Literally, it did change my life. It was like the the face crack of the century. I was like, that can't be him. Like I whipped out the playbill because it was like a kind of small play. It was at Playwrights Horizons and it was amazing. But he was like this cowboy and like this little speedo. It was <gasps> Is this he still whole hot? thing. Yes. <laughs> That's like how I knew. And he's what, like 20 years, 20 older. years older? He's now. still fine. Wow. But he's like peak fine man in this movie. Yeah. And his voice is so it's good. It's just like so silky. 
<laughs> it really is silky. <laughs> and then finally, we have... Last but not least. Yeah. So last but not least, we have Bernadette Peters as the stepmother 10 years after Into the Woods. If you want that for perspective. Yeah. And there's a ton of other amazing people in this movie, too. But those are like the heavy. Yeah. Also, the stepsisters were amazing, but they're not like name recognizable. Um, I bet they come from theater. Probably. Yeah. I tried to look up the one stepsister on social media today and there was nothing. Oh, no. The white stepsister. I tried to look (laughs) her up. Calliope (laughs) has left the chat forevermore. (laughs) We kind of touched on this, but not fully. But again, this the fact that they were approaching this movie this way, keep in mind, this was like almost 20 years before Hamilton. It was like very before its time in a lot of ways. Yeah, and post the whiz, but pre-Hamilton type of vibe, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and... There were other things, I'm sure, yeah, but nothing, it, nothing that like this. famous. Nothing Disney. Nothing Disney. Nothing Disney. Yeah. So, speaking of the fact that nothing like this had ever happened at Disney before... Allegedly, there was an executive at Disney who didn't want Brandy as Cinderella because a black woman, Whitney, was already in a leading role as the fairy godmother. And uh, apparently it wasn't Michael Eisner who was the president at the time. And obviously the producers and the director were like, you're dumb, we're casting Brandy. And they did it anyway. But like, we just want to clarify that there wasn't like zero Zero pushback. pushback about this. So Whitney chose and casted Brandy entirely on her own. And was her mentor. And thank God. So we have a lot of information about the movie in this episode. So I don't really want to go into the culture too heavily of 1997. But here are just a couple things for you to keep in mind, especially if you were someone who was not fully conscious at this time, like Audrey, <laughs> who was born in June. And you were too. <laughs> that is true. I wasn't conscious either. But, you know, uh, yeah, I, you got me there. I would just I would just like to say that this this movie was being filmed during my first month of existence. That's why you turn out the way you and did. Wow. It was cosmic. Truly. It was cosmic. During cancer season. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, probably cusp of both of us. Yeah. Anyway. June 26, <laughs> July 26. Yeah. No, literally like right before they started shooting yeah. and then like mid probably mid That's shoot. That's why we ended up the way we are. Insane. <laughs> It's all about this movie. So anyway, 1997, Titanic came out. Obviously, that's huge. Austin Powers came out. Uh, Destiny's Child's first album came out. What's Not to Love There. (laughs) First Harry Potter book came out. and On the day I was born. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. June 26, 1997, the first Harry Potter book came out. That's a that was a big day. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh sadly, Princess Diana died in 1997 and obviously that was a huge scandal and really informed the culture at the time. People were really really upset about it. People were really distrusting of like media and like I guess the royal family after that, whatever. This is not a conspiracy podcast no. about Princess Diana dying. I'm just telling you that that happened <laughs> that year. What do you remember about this movie from when we watched it? together when we were children. It's strange because I was trying to think back to what I remember from watching it as a kid, but it genuinely just feels like a part of my DNA. You said that about Princess Diaries too. But this one's even more. But this one's even more because we had it on VHS. I don't know when my mother acquired it (laughs) because I don't remember a time when we did not have it. So... It's hard to remember what my impressions of it were watching it 
as a child, but obviously I was very mesmerized by it. Mm-hmm. And I I'm, I don't want to like steal your points from down yeah, here. Yeah, one of the things I wrote down is that Audrey has always loved live action more than animation. Is that the point you were going to make? Yeah. Um, yeah. So like how we mentioned before, like Sound of Music, love that. Brandy Cinderella, which we would call it this movie Brandy Cinderella, <laughs> yeah. um, to distinguish between Brandy Cinderella, <laughs> distinguish between the animated and the Brandy one. Yeah, she also loved like Mister Rogers and Out of the Box yeah, and like was... Gullah Gullah Island, probably like all those shows <laughs> that were live action and not animated. Like Audrey lived. I just preferred. Yeah, and I still do. Oh, and Mary Poppins. Yeah, Mary Poppins as well. Some of the things that spring to my mind when I think about watching this movie as a kid, um, Cinderella's dress. I mean, I feel like every Cinderella movie, the dress is a huge part, but like her dress was really, really cool. Yeah. And I remember like really looking at the fabric and like thinking about the what fabric. What feel like. Mm-hmm. It's like a little bit unclear from looking at it. Yeah. And her eyeshadow matches the dress yes, perfectly. She has blue eyeshadow. I remember always thinking the special effects were a little bit weird in this movie. Yeah, from day one, they and that's because they are. <laughs> they are sketchy. But one of the things that's cool about it, and one thing that is always stuck in my mind, is that there's like this motif of these like swirlies, mm-hmm. um, which are hard to explain. But if you watch, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking like about. Golden accents that you see both in the sets and in the visual effects. Yeah, there is like super consistent and beautiful visual direction. Yeah. In all the production design of this movie, which makes it feel like a high-budget Broadway show. Mm-hmm. And we love that, obviously. I remember Jason Alexander making a lot of very weird noises in this movie. Yeah. Very like, hmm, like lots yeah, of he's very getting cartoony. knocked around. And There's also creepy that. puppets. At and, the beginning. Yeah. And it's like, Lady Mona. <laughs> and they're like in the, ta- the town yeah. square. Yes. Really, this movie, there's so much about the hairdos in this movie. Yeah. Like, I remember paying really specific attention to what everyone's hair looked like. Lots of stuff about, like, bodies in general in this mm-hmm. movie, too, because they everyone looks so different. Like, I think you're not sitting there being like, oh, she looks different from the others, but I think yeah. that it's just, like, the fact that the whole world was really colorful, but it wasn't like, we're crazy and colorful. Like, it just yeah. was like that, I think, really fit well with the casting. And we didn't sit there as kids being like, the prince is... Asian and the king is white and the queen is black like we never really thought about that being like how would that work like we were just like yes this is it yeah you're just so distracted by absolutely everything on screen and mesmerized by it the story and it's such a simple story but the way that they tell it is just like so with with so much ease and confidence yeah everyone in this movie vocals just like Ballin. Yeah. So we're going to watch this movie now. I have a feeling we're going to come back and really only have good things to say, but we have prepared a lot of interesting nuggets about this movie. Yeah. If you have been a fan of this movie, or even if you've watched it for the first time, there's so many interesting things to learn about how it was made and the cultural significance of it yes. in its time. Absolutely. So um, maybe... Pour yourself a glass of wine or make yourself like some hot chocolate. Maybe do some vocal warm ups. <laughs> do some sirens. We're going to be singing through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, this is like Rocky Horror. <laughs> for the uninitiated. What would you what would you have to do if you were uninitiated at this? At, uh, a, at a Cinderella screening. You would have to like. Oh my gosh. You would have to. I feel like you would have to like get up in front of everyone and go like. It's possible. <laughs> You have 
have to do like a Whitney Houston like belt or something. Yeah. You have to attempt it. Yeah, you have to attempt it. And even if it's bad, it's about believing. Yeah. It's not about executing. Yeah. If you were at a theoretical rowdy screening of the movie. <laughs> Which cannot be a thing. No, we should just make that a thing. Yeah. That's, that could be our live event. Yeah. That we do. <gasps> that would yeah. be so fun. That would be really fun. Maybe we'll, we'll plan that. Yeah, maybe. If we if can ever leave allowed, our house again. If we're ever allowed to gather again. We'll do that. So we'll be right back. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello. We watched the movie. We sang along. We got emotional. This hit harder and better than I thought it would. Really? Yes. I got so much joy from watching this. Yeah. More than I expected, which yeah. is saying something because my expectations were pretty high. Mm hmm. I think the fact that we had my very uninitiated boyfriend watching with us helped, too, because we got to be like... See it. When you watch it with somebody who's never seen it, you can kind of, like... See it through their see eyes. See it through their eyes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, again, I didn't take a ton of notes. No, because we were entertained. But there were a few things that I wrote down. <laughs> the main notes... Okay, the only critical slash confused notes I have... Jason Alexander's accent in this movie. <laughs> is it Italian? It's otherworldly. <laughs> is it kind of like Slavic? His character's name is Lionel. It's it's kind of like spin-off Italian. Not really sure what he was going for. Italian. Yeah, me neither. Also, one thing I was really aware of when we were watching the movie is the sensation of like when you're a little kid and you watch a movie a lot and you can like memorize the sentences and the lines, but you don't actually know what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, I felt like I could recite any of the lines from that movie, but it was more about the pitches and the tone than about the actual words. Yeah. So like actually so hearing many things just go over your head. Right. So actually hearing the words this time and getting it, I was like, oh, it's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, that's like a double meaning or something. Right. <laughs> Did you have any notes? Not really. <laughs> you had nothing? Earlier, we mentioned that Julie Andrews was supposed to be the queen. Or the first choice. The first choice. But as we were watching, we kind of remembered that she also played Cinderella in the first American televised version of Cinderella. Um, so not only was it just great to have her play the queen, but it was also somewhat of a reference. Right. If it had happened. Right. But I'm personally very glad it was Whoopi. Me too. She was really, really funny. And she made like very particular choices Bold throughout choices. the whole thing. She's and, like, ah, uh, ah. Yeah, she's like, ah. like, That kind of sound. <laughs> 
But one of our fun facts that we have about Whoopi in this movie is that in every scene she's in, apparently for all of her jewelry, they had made her like this really beautiful but fake jewelry. And she was like, no, no, no. no, no. no. <laughs> I have friends at Harry Winston. Here's the name. Here's the number. Just call them and I can borrow anything on loan. So in this article that we were reading earlier, they were saying that she was wearing like millions of dollars of jewels in every shot. And there were like armed guards there to yeah. like watch over the jewels as yeah. they were filming. Very similar to Julie Andrews right. in The Princess Diaries. Right. But it sounds like Whoopi had even more yeah. than Julie did, which is saying something. Yeah. That's my goal in life, you know, get yeah. to the point where you can call them up and be like friends at Harry Winston. armed guards type situation. That is ideal. Yes. You know who's really good in this movie? Who? Bernadette Peters. Yeah. Which we knew. Clearly. But she was so funny. Yeah. And apparently, again, this is one of the facts we compiled. Okay, this is what I think one of the executive producers said this about trying to cast the role of the evil stepmother. Deborah Martin Chase said, I cannot emphasize enough what a bitch it was to cast this role. No white actress wanted to be seen as being mean to the black Cinderella. We went to Bette Midler. She and different people kept giving us the same no response. I would write these long letters, putting the role in context, explaining the importance of what we were doing with the multicultural cast and the cultural impact we hoped to have. I wanted them to understand that they wouldn't just be coming on board for a great show. It was also going to be important culturally. And Bernadette was the one who understood that and yeah. and immediately was just like, yes, like didn't even think about it. Yes. And she's like very, she's like mean in this movie, but it's not just mean. No. She's very nuanced. She like created a whole, you can tell she created a whole backstory for this woman. Totally. And, and it helps with the song Falling in Love with Love. You can, God, so if good. you listen to the lyrics, she's talking you about know everything. how love fell out with her. And there's this whole backstory. We don't know anything well, about it. Remember later on, she's like, your father was weak. Right. And you're common. And so was your mother. Right. But we like don't know anything other than that. So yeah. it works. It works. She brought the depth. Yeah, she brought the depth where they're needed to be. And she was a diva, but she wasn't too much of a diva. Yeah. One thing that I did kind of notice throughout this movie, though, is that Brandy's voice, she's not bad, but I do feel like everyone else is better than her at singing. Yeah, I think Brandy had the the right youthful energy and the right star power for what Whitney was looking for mm -hmm. in the role of Cinderella. Yeah. And I do feel like she really, like visually, she really does fit. Yeah. Exactly the vibe they were going for. And like she and Paolo's Their chemistry, chemistry is, is really, really good. good. It's super cute. Yeah. Like I buy it. I totally buy it. But I do feel like her voice could be better, especially because Paolo was like this and is still a Broadway actor yeah. with this like, insanely luscious voice. Yeah. Like you, apparently they directed him to sing like George Michael to like be more poppy to kind of like meet Brandy where she was at. Cause he's yeah. like full vibrato and he's still full vibrato the whole time. Yeah. But. And they told Brandy to try to pretend like she was singing opera. Really? Yeah. That's all. It's also in the article, but um, yeah, they told Paolo to sing like George Michael and they told Brandy to sing like opera, um, what she felt like was opera. <laughs> Neither of them really do Neither, that. And, <laughs> and them trying to achieve those goals, like I, you, you, 
I mean, it's a good thing they told him that because because I mean, who knows if that was them trying? Yeah, like who, who knows, knows what, what it would have been? Sounded like otherwise. <laughs> yeah. One thing that we also were talking about was how is how beautifully colorful the entire movie is. Like it seems like every scene has a color scheme that's really particularly chosen. And there was something in the article about that, right? Yeah, so basically the idea for the production designers was to create such a colorful atmosphere between the royal sets and the, like, marketplace Mm -hmm. type sets um, and have the colors be so saturated and vibrant that you would not be paying attention to, you know, the color of the actors at all. And it would just be such a colorful world that it would be really just captivating to the eye. And it would feel natural. Yeah. They definitely achieved it. Yeah, definitely. Tell me what they said in this article about the editing process. As far as the shooting and editing aspect of this movie, it seems like what happened is the director didn't shoot that much coverage of each scene, meaning that he didn't choose a lot of different angles of each character or, you know, he really decided exactly what he wanted. Like, for example, the um, like spinning crane shot in the ballroom once Cinderella has come down and they're dancing and they're spinning in one direction and the camera is circling them in the opposite direction. Um, That's a really good example of when he decided what he wanted, shot it in the least amount of takes as possible and was like, we're going with this. And, um, when the executive saw it, he was really f- hoping that they wouldn't want something different because mm-hmm. if they did want something different, he wouldn't have been able to provide that. <laughs> but he said that it was like an oddly smooth process with the executives. Like they were getting the dailies every day, which is during production. At the end of the day, the production will send all of their footage from the day to the executives or the people basically paying for the movie and they'll watch it, and maybe with the editor they'll watch it. And everybody was really happy with it, which is super rare, I feel like, especially for a musical. Yeah, it must mean that the production team was really unified in what they wanted. On board with the vision, yeah. Yeah. And just trusted the director and the cinematographer to do what they set out to do. Right. Really, again, though, one of the most wholesome and inspiring things about this movie is what it meant for representation for little black girls in America, especially for girls that really love Disney princess movies. Like, it really feels like this movie made a very big difference. And so one of these anecdotes that was shared in the article that we keep referencing, um, one of the executive producers said this. About a week before the premiere, the L.A. calendar section had done a story on the movie. They had a huge photo of Brandy in her blue dress, and we got a letter from a woman who said that her daughter cut the picture out and pinned it to her pillow. She slept with it every night. And so we decided with Deborah we would invite them to the premiere. But at that point, even before the movie aired, we were feeling that it was going to be impactful. That was the first sign of how needed it was. So the premiere of this made-for-TV movie looked a lot like a typical Hollywood movie premiere. Mm -hmm. Red carpet. um, Carriages. Full-on carriages (laughs) for Paolo and Brandy and Whitney, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, they got a standing ovation after the screening, which I feel like, I mean, it might be common just for premieres in general because it's always the people who worked on it. Um, But for such a groundbreaking movie, it's just really like affirming to have that level of 
positive reaction at the premiere. So even with all of the recognition that they got at their premiere and even with 60 million people having watched this movie when it premiered on The Wonderful World of Disney, there were still some reservations with the VHS sale and like the at-home tapes sale, basically. So according to the article that we keep referencing... Kendra, thank you. um, People just weren't getting behind the VHS release the way they needed to. There was also an unspoken racial issue about it being a black show. Disney was counting on sales to make their money back, and it didn't look like it was going to happen. They needed chains like Walmart and Blockbuster to put up giant cardboard cutout displays of Brandy and Whitney, and the chains were reluctant. The Disney marketing people basically said to them, if you want to continue getting an early look at our Disney animated movies, you have to promote Cinderella. And if you don't promote it, we're going to make sure other chains get our products before you. It became like a threat. And finally, they had to almost force them to put them up. But they did. And the crazy thing is, even with all that, the VHS still sold 1 million units in the first week. And at that point in time, that just was not a thing. Like, imagine a million people rushing out to buy a VHS. Yeah. Run into their blockbuster. It's insane. (laughs) Yeah. And that would be, I'm assuming, roughly the time that we got our claws on it. (laughs) Our meaty claws on this movie. (laughs) Because we did have the VHS. To run it ragged. Yeah. For the next, like, eight years. And she has been run ragged. (laughs) She really has been run ragged. And so one thing that's really interesting is even though this version of Cinderella was so, so, so popular... I think for, like, the creative team, that was really encouraging. So, like, the person on Cinderella who was the choreographer, Rob Marshall, moved on to direct the version of Annie that Disney did in 99, just two years later. And they kind of went into that project being like, okay, we're going to approach this in the same way as we would approach Cinderella. like similar way. I mean, it's mostly white people. It is. Well, that's the thing is it's mostly white people. But, I mean... It's good casting. Yeah. Victor Garber makes a return. But one thing that's really interesting is Grace, who is like Daddy Warbucks's secretary in the movie and in the musical, was played by Audra McDonald, who, excellence. Yes. She is excellence. It's kind of surprising that she didn't somehow end up in Cinderella. Yeah. Maybe it was it a, little been a little early for her, maybe. But basically, in the end of Annie... It is canon, allegedly, that Grace, who's his secretary, and Daddy Warbucks get together. They get engaged. And in this interview with Alec Baldwin, which I, like, somehow remembered existed recently, Audra McDonald was talking about how at the end of the movie, she, so Audra McDonald is a black woman, she gets proposed to by Daddy Warbucks, who is a white man, Victor Garber. And I guess that they shot it, and then one of the executives at Disney was like... I don't know. Should we really? This is iffy. Like, should we do this? And the reason why Victor Garber is the white man of the decade is because, according to Audra, (laughs) is because according to Audra, he intentionally like bombed, messed up the tape, the reshoot of whatever the alternate scene was, where you know maybe he's. You can like, tell they're romantically interested, but he doesn't propose or yeah, he maybe doesn't he, kiss like, winks her. at her or yeah. something. And so they ended up having to go with the original. And it's just so confusing to me that they... Apparently, it wasn't Michael Eisner who had the issues. So we don't know who the exec was at Disney yeah. that was, like, racist. I mean, I'm sure there's many of them in their own ways oh, that are I'm racist. Sure. I'm sure. Um, but... 
interesting and disheartening. Very, yeah. Because it was after this. It was after yeah. Cinderella, but not which by much. A, which was a success. Yeah. Yeah. And he's really good, though. I want to add that to our list of ones that we talk about at some point. Yeah. It's a great movie. So clearly, Whitney Houston is the one who started this whole thing, mm-hmm. this entire project. It started with her idea and her vision. And we know what ultimately ended up happening with her, which is really sad. But apparently, one of the producers of this movie uh, visited Whitney about a year before she passed in Atlanta. And Whitney confided in her, I believe this is Deborah Martin Chase, that her favorite project in her career was Cinderella and that the heartbreak of her career was Cinderella. And um, the reason for that is because the soundtrack, all of the songs from the movie were never released. Um, And that's because Brandy's label and Whitney's label had a disagreement over something related to the release of this yeah. music. So what I saw, what the issue was, is that Brandy's people were like, she's an urban contemporary artist. We don't need this like mainstream pop Broadway. slash theater recording of her out. But the fact that this cast recording is not like... It's not available. ...on vinyl on my shelf right now is so painful. It's very sad. It's so... It's such an amazing set of recordings. And it's literally just sitting somewhere. Yeah. And and still existing. And I saw, I think, that in 2017, they were kind Ew. of thinking about mm-hmm. about releasing it. And um, maybe one day we'll get it. I, I hope really so. I really hope we get it. Maybe we should start a... Uh, a petition. Change.org. Change.org. We got to start a change.org. Change.org. Give us the soundtrack. <laughs> We need it. <laughs> I don't want to have to scrub through the YouTube video yeah, to hear the or songs. just like listen to it in my head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, also, similarly, we tried to watch this on Disney Plus and it's, it's not, not there. on Disney Plus, which is very sketchy. They got the weirdest old Disney movies on Disney Plus. Like what? So, we should have checked if Annie was on there. Because I feel like that would maybe say something about stuff that was like Wonderful World of Disney, which yeah. I literally cannot yeah, say. It's kind of a um, like an offshoot, an offshoot because it, and it was television, so there's that. But so um, kind of like the main quote that I love from the article that um, Deborah Martin Chase, one of the producers, said when they were trying to cast the movie, um, it was a lot of late nights and super overwhelming for the producers and the casting directors and the director and. They were really being run down by working on this movie day and night. And I guess Deborah Martin Chase was kind of ran out into the hallway and started crying. And her assistant came out and told her that if making this were easy, it would have been done before. And this is what it feels like to be making history. And that's the sentiment that motivated Deborah to keep going and to see this movie through. Yeah. And we're all so grateful that she did. And it's really the legacy of the movie, too. Like, I think for us growing up and watching it a million times, we would never look at this and be like, this is real Cinderella and this is black Cinderella. Like, to us, this was the real Cinderella. It was the best one we had. Yeah. Everybody's got their, like, five versions or whatever. Right, right, right. I personally think, and I think you agree with me, that the most history-making and the most iconic shot of this whole movie is when Brandy, as Cinderella, obviously, walks into the ball and she's just like so happy looking, so full of vitality, just glowing. 
I remember being a little kid and looking at her shoulders and yeah. being like, her skin looks beautiful. Yeah. And she gets this long, silent shot yeah, where no there's music. dead silence. She's like slowly making her way down the stairs and it's like kind of from far back. And you're just like, damn, she looks really beautiful and really happy. Yeah. And it's just really, really I don't know how to describe what it's like to watch, but it just feels like you can feel like the excitement and of that the, moment. Yeah, yeah. And because like, it's really kind of stuck in time in that way. Yeah. Like we've come a long way. We have a long way to go since then. But you can feel like the pure the happiness and yeah. the history of like that shot. And I like how they died down on. I like how they had no music behind it because it just kind of amplifies mm -hmm. how big of a deal it was. Yeah. And it also almost felt like it could be a jump scare. <laughs> like it was quiet enough and <laughs> like it was footsteps only to the point like I hadn't even really realized how dramatic of a shot that was until we were watching it now and I was like dang. They were really making a point with that because everything else was so like action packed and really rich in like all different kinds of stimuli. And this mm -hmm. one was just like, this is beautiful Brandy walking down the stairs. Take it in. Yeah. This is the point of our movie. Yeah. And it, it is the point, literally. Oh, and also Whitney shot her entire part in four days. That I believe because most of it was on green screen. She clearly <laughs> had very limited free time. Yes. In 1997. Yes. That's peak Whitney time. Also, it's kind of crazy that they shot this in July and it came out in November. November. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't shoot much coverage, though. Yeah. And so it's not hard to edit a movie when you have, like, three takes of each scene. Yeah, that's really true. It's not that hard. But it's just crazy to think that they, like, created all those sets from nothing. Kind of from nothing. Yeah. And we're just like, we're just gonna get the bare minimum of what we need. Yeah, I mean, I don't think time permitted because they only had 12 million for everything. And that is nothing for a movie like that with that scope. It's really nothing. It does really feel like the sets are like a place you could walk into in real life. Like they yeah. feel super like theme parky almost. <laughs> but I like that about it. Yeah, very fantastical. Also, I really, really loved the scene with Brandy. And Whitney, when Whitney's trying to convince Brandy that she's deserving. And Whitney's like, your stepmother just cannot handle how fabulous you are. <laughs> like that was, I feel like for some reason that is like something our mom would say to us. Yeah. Like that, like those words, like mm -hmm. that kind of word choice reminded yeah. me of her. A lot of the wording um, and the writing, watching it today, it's so clear that they were trying to make it really digestible for our demographic yes. at the time and to also make it clear that this Cinderella is not looking to be saved. Mm -hmm. She has her own priorities, but she's also a dreamer. And it's okay that she has both of those yes. character traits. Also, Paolo's still really hot. Yeah. It holds up. Yes. Whoopi was so funny. I can't get over how good Whoopi was in this. <laughs> So I got really emotional during uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, <laughs> but I feel like this is like tied for joy levels. This was definitely the highest joy levels yeah, I've joy had. Yeah, joy levels through the roof. Yes. We love a musical. Yeah. We're just those types we of really gals. So if you have memories of this movie, which you probably do if you're listening to this podcast, yeah. <laughs> please send us a DM to Pink Pictures on Instagram. We would love to hear about it. 
if you just want to send us the same disposable camera pictures of the cast backstage that we've seen a million times, like I'll never be mad at someone sending those to us. So please do. And again, big, huge, gigantic thank you to Kendra James, who wrote the oral history of Cinderella for Shondaland.com. We're going to link to this article heavily everywhere. There's so many other little bits that you can learn from it. It's so long, but it's so good. Yeah. And the way that she researched this article was like, calling everyone who was still alive talking to everybody yeah to talk about it you know it's the journalism we need yeah so um thank you again to kendra james and we will talk to all of you again very soon quite soon this was a nice refresher this was just yes this is like a cry what is that thing called where when the government picks your movie and then like saves it in like an archive oh Yeah, that. I don't know what it's called. called? Well, whatever. This movie belongs in that. I don't know. Anyway, this, this movie needs to be preserved and beloved forever. Bye. Bye. You can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with our latest creative projects at tupingpictures.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at tupingpictures and would love to hear from you there. And if you like the show, if it brings back evocative memories of childhood or tweendom or babysitting, share an episode of your choice with your friends. And maybe even leave us an iTunes review telling us what movie you'd like to see us cover next. Sleepover Cinema is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and is edited and produced by me, Hannah Ray Leach. Special thanks to mixing engineer Sean Rule Hoffman and executive producers Michael D'Aloya and David Moss. Our show music is by Josh Perlman Hall. We'll chat again soon. Bye. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.